Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. Off the 
talking with Kit O'Connell, who is a self-described gonzo journalist and editor-in-chief of Ministry of Hemp, which is a hemp sort of rights activism website. Um, you know him from his work at Fire Dog Lake. He was an editor there. And he's also been involved with gay rights um, activism for a very long time. So I wanted to um, have him on today to talk about, obviously, hemp and gay rights, but also some other things that are going down in Texas since Kit is a um, Texas native. Are you a native or do you just live there now? I know you're in Austin. No, I'm not. A, no, definitely not a Texas native. I was born in Connecticut, so I okay. guess that makes me a damn Yankee, actually. But uh, I've been in Texas. I've been in Texas for about 20 years now, basically, okay. 20, 21 years. Okay, so I have it in my head that you're from Texas, but I see 20 years is sort of your adopted. Um, so you do live in Austin, Texas, and I wanted to start off the conversation with a discussion on Beto since he's been making headlines this week. His voting record was uh, recently brought to attention by uh, Davis Road of Capital in Maine, and he sided with the GOP on a lot of different issues as well as fossil fuel industry money. Uh, so these are things I think as folks on the left that we should be discussing. And there was a swift outcry from the Democratic ex establishment, not because of his dismal record, but because it was exposed, which is just a giant face palm, in my opinion. Um, what are your thoughts on this? You know, I personally, as an activist and journalist, I choose not to do most. I, I try not to do most of my activism within electoral politics. And I'm not in any way trying to argue that they're useless uh, by any means. But it's just not my focus because... Um, you know, we see people like Data over and over again that kind of end up being these sort of figureheads that, that don't really stand up uh, to, to close scrutiny. Um, you know, I voted for Beto, and I am happy that I did that because I wanted to try to unseat some of the messy crap going on here in, in Texas, you know, and, and turn it around. And I saw that I could, you know, make this minimal participation in our system that, that you know, at least would, would show my disapproval of what's happening. Um, but I didn't, I don't personally think that Beto that needs to be, like to continue to be this great white hope or whatever of the Democrats. Um, I just, it's, you know, he's obviously uh, better than the alternatives down here, but if we're going to make a difference, we need to stop with the sort of better than the alternative candidates and try to find people that are actually compelling. That's my opinion as, a, as someone who considers himself mostly an outsider to the Democrats. You know, I vote for them uh, strategically at times, but I feel like overall, uh, if the Democrats want to turn things around, they need to find people that are that are really genuinely compelling in their own right, that are saying uh, really compelling things about the radical solutions that we need to our problems. Uh, and then actually are able to follow through with them, which, you know, then we can have a whole discussion about whether that's even possible from within, you know, Congress or the presidency or any of that. But, you know, if we do have those sorts of people, we need to, we need to push those people to the front. And, you know, people like Beto, I think the best role they can have is to uh, support young, fresh, radical-leaning candidates. Um, and I would, I would include Bernie Sanders in that, too. Um, I think he says interesting things as a congressperson sometimes. I think he has some flaws. And I'd love to see him go all in and supporting some really interesting 
uh, diverse and radical young candidates uh, for, for all offices, including the presidency, rather than personally would want, want to see him run for president again. Okay, you know, that's fair. And I um, hear your point on electoral politics. It seems to me it is it is becoming a choice and has been for a long time, actually, of lesser evils, which is it's tough because I would if and given your position, I would have also voted for Beto. But I also find his track record exceedingly disappointing. And I guess what I'm more more turned off by is the fact that too many times we see establishment folks in the Democrat Party sort of covering up and deflecting from uh, deflecting from these issues as opposed to addressing them and trying to change them. You know, we can't say we're the party of of uh, pri- of uh, climate change when we're taking money from the fossil fuel industry. It's absolutely ludicrous and hypo- it is a hypocrisy. And I think that this is why we have such um, a- uh, such apathy from voters, why they don't come out and vote because they ultimately think that, well, what does it matter? Nobody's actually listening to what I want neither parties there for me, and they're just basically telling me to shut up, listen, and vote without regard to what uh, my needs are. And I really think that politicians work for us; we don't work for them. And I think that that mentality has been lost um, in this this day and age as a trade off that's really unsettling in many ways. So makes sense to me. And sometimes it's easier as an activist to stay outside of the party. Um, establishment because you get sucked into that stuff and it's just it's it's just a vicious cycle downward for, for me it's always been about focusing on what the issues are and for that for me that's meant that i've protested against both parties you know i yeah. protested uh when obama came to austin during his presidency i protested against his immigration policies and his support for the big banks and Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, all the other things that he was doing, the human rights violations that his administration was responsible for and all kinds of places in the world. And, yeah. you know, now I'm continuing to, to protest and try to, you know, document those things as a journalist under Trump. Um, and I imagine that regardless of the, you know, outcome of the next election, uh, you know, that I will try to keep doing that, you know, regardless of what party is in power. Yeah, no, I'm I'm hearing that. Um, let's talk about hemp for a second because you've been working on um, hemp ap- activism for quite a while, and we're starting to see a massive shift in public opinion on marijuana legalization, and obviously hemp's related to that. Even though hemp doesn't get you high, but people kind of sort of group these things together in their mind. So, what are some of the recent um, victories that you folks have had? Sure. So the Ministry of Hemp, uh, where I work as an editor in chief, uh, you know, is a media site that's an advocacy site for, uh, you know, for industrial hemp, uh, which legally in the United States is defined as anything that has less than 0.3% on THC, uh, which is, of course, is that active ingredient that makes the, the primary ingredient in marijuana or psychoactive cannabis that makes people feel high. Um, there, is, there are other differences that it's good to mention just because people aren't very familiar with it. People visualizing marijuana, they, they think about those big bushy plants with the huge buds that we all see in sort of the High Times magazines and stuff. But industrial hemp is grown outdoors in very dense clusters that actually look a lot more like bamboo, typically. They're very tall. Uh, they're, they're leafy, but they don't have these big flower buds that, that we get with marijuana. And people are harvesting them for the leaves and stuff as well, and sometimes in some cases buds, but there's also uses for basically every part of it, including the, the woody core of it. You can make textiles, paper, building materials. You could go on for a whole program 
to talk in all the ways you could you can. Um, so it's an amazing material. Um, what's been the, the status quo in the United States up until this year, uh, uh, hemp was only partially legal after decades of total prohibition along with marijuana. But hemp was legalized partially in 2014 under Obama. And uh, that allowed for what were called research programs. And under those research programs, some of which were very broad, in Vermont, you can join the research program and grow hemp just by spending $25. Uh, and then you can basically get your license and do it. Other states are much more restricted. So it's been all over the board. About 25,000 acres of hemp were grown in the U.S. And, of course, everybody at this point is probably familiar with CBD, which is the supplement that people make from hemp. That so much, so many benefits that doesn't make people feel high, and that so many people are using, even in states that don't have recreational or medical marijuana yet. But most of the hemp is still in the U.S., especially for stuff other than CBD. But even for CBD, it's imported um, from China or Europe or India. Uh, and so the big big news for this industry is that as part of the 2018 Farm Bill, which was just passed. Uh, there's a new law. It legalizes hemp fully. And so what that means is it takes it out of the control of the Drug Enforcement Administration. Um, even with the partial legalization under the 2014 Farm Bill, it was, uh, the DDA was trying to say, look, hemp is still illegal. CBD is still illegal. It's the same as marijuana. And now I personally, I personally want to see the whole plant legalized for everybody or decriminalized. But, but, you know, it is ridiculous to say that they're identical or that they're the same because they're measurably different. They have different effects. Um, and so, um, you know, this, what this bill does is as long as it's under that 0.3% THC, which is way less than you would need, even 1% THC would still not get you high. But it continues the 0.3% definition. As long as that hemp plant is under 0.3%, uh, it's, it's legal and can no longer be part of the Controlled Substances Act which is the, the law that lets the DEA classify things as illegal. And so at this point, it goes to the control of the USDA, the Department of Agriculture, who are going to get set policies for it. Now, under this new law, the USDA will set overall federal policies and encourage everybody to follow them. And, and, and probably those policies are going to be fairly broad. We don't know what those look like yet, but the idea is to encourage hemp growing. Um, and then individuals states will still be able to be more restrictive if they want to, which could be a problem, but at least we'll have, you know, the federal example saying, look, the federal government doesn't think this is illegal. Um, and what's really interesting to emphasize here is that this is a, a very bipartisan issue. Um, Mitch McConnell, who I personally don't usually agree with very often, was a huge proponent, was a huge proponent of hemp. And the reason we're seeing that is that in Kentucky, where McConnell's from, Hemp is saving the livelihoods of tobacco farmers. I've talked to them. You know, they're ninth generation, tenth generation tobacco farmers. Their family grew tobacco for years. Well, there's no, there's no tobacco market anymore. That's fallen out. So now they're growing hemp, and they're making money hand over fist. And, you know, even to a Republican who probably still thinks marijuana is the, de the devil's weed with roots in hell, they can see that, and they can listen to the tobacco farmers and think, look, this is not, you know, we, this isn't marijuana and we should legalize it. Now, I do want to emphasize that there's still kind of a catch in this law, which is unfortunate, and that we oppose administrative hemp. I personally oppose is that there is a restriction, which is that if you have a drug felony conviction and that drug felony conviction is less than 10 years old, you cannot grow hemp. You can't grow hemp if you have that. 
And that's ridiculous. There's no reason to uh, discriminate against specifically hemp uh, drug felons. Um, and there's really no risk, even because of how hemp is grown. There's not even really a risk. It'd be more like if I wanted to grow illegal marijuana and hide it, I would be better off growing tomatoes and trying to hide it than I would with hemp because it just doesn't work to grow hemp and marijuana together. So this is just a misguided thing. Now, with Ministry of Hemp, we were able to help bring attention to this because the original version of the law said no one with drug felonies could grow hemp, period. And now it accepts those people who are it's over 10 years old or the people who are already growing under the 2014 farm bill. And that's really important because there's people who help build the hemp industry that we have that were going to be completely forced out potentially by this law. And that was garbage. We weren't going to stand for that and see people forced out. But we still think it's a problem. We'd like to see um, hemp, you know, fully legalized in the sense that anyone anywhere uh, in the U.S. can grow it. Um, one good thing also to emphasize about this, too, is that the Farm Bill specifically protects the rights of Native Americans to grow hemp. And that's been a problem in the past when Native tribes were growing hemp, but the state that their reservation was, you know, was located inside had not legalized hemp. There was a situation in 2015 where the Menominee tribe, they were growing all three acres of hemp. So it's hardly uh, an empire, but they were going three acres of hemp, and the police came in and bulldozed it because Wisconsin had not legalized hemp. And so under this, this new farm bill, under this new law, that should not be possible. The tribes have control over the hemp. They can choose not to grow it, uh, but they also can choose to grow it. But, you know, there's still going to be some fights. It's still going to be interesting to see what, what happens. 2019 is going to be a huge year for hemp in all kinds of ways. You had an interesting post on your blog in regards to this, where a man in Dallas had failed a drug test over CBD oil and then was rejected uh, because of it for an organ transplant, um, which is kind of crazy. So I suppose you could have testing um, from drug testing where the, t- the minimal amount of the THC that's in the hemp ends up in um, your system. And so what are the ways around this um, before we get to, I'd like to see us get to the point where it's just completely legalized. So it's a non sequitur. But at this particular junction, this seems like an unfair reality. What, what are your thoughts on this? Why take a handful of prescription pills to treat your aches and pains when you could use a natural alternative? That's why so many folks are turning to CBD and hemp. But before you take that plunge, News Channel 5's Jonquil Newland explains why using CBD could cost you your job. We're at the first hemp dispensary that opened in the state of Tennessee, and more businesses like this one are popping up across the state, and more folks are turning to CBD for treatment. But concerns can arise when it comes to passing a drug test. At Tennessee Hemp Supply in Murfreesboro, they're experts on all things hemp and CBD. From body butters to oils to pet products and actual hemp flowers, CBD is becoming the go-to for folks who are looking to manage their ailments without taking prescription medication. Here, they've seen enough customers who travel from Shelbyville that they decided to open a second dispensary there. It'll open next week. However, folks need to do their research before they decide to use CBD and or hemp. While legal CBD contains less than 0.3% of THC, that small amount can show up on a drug test. And if it does, that means you will fail and could lose your job. Folks here tell us it's happened before. Everyone processes and stores cannabinoids differently, and I want to point out cannabinoids because CBD is one of those cannabinoids. THC is just the cannabinoid that they're testing for. 
There are CBD products that do not contain any THC in them at all. It'll provide you with the same anti-inflammatory, um, anti-anxiety. Mueller says it's best, however, if you do have concerns about a drug test to stay away altogether. In Murfreesboro, I'm Jonquil Newland, News Channel 5. It is, I mean, it is unfair, um, and I'm actually uh, sadly out of the, the man that I wrote about that passed uh, in December. So I don't, I don't know the details of, of whether what happened exactly between him being rejected for the transplant and his passing. But yeah, he, he did die. It's a very sad situation. He was a, you know, father and grandfather. Uh, it's a super, super sad situation. Um, you know, as far as drug tests go, it's you know, I don't know specifically with his issue. Some drug tests are either very sensitive to THC and theoretically even the minuscule amounts, or if someone is taking extremely high doses of CBD, they could also just have accumulated so much. It's still not making them feel high, but just the, over time, the amount that they're kind of accumulating um, in their body yeah, is... Cause, but what those tests look at is, is, is THC, or the active form of it, turns into an inactive form that then gets stored in people's fat temporarily. And so those tests are essentially looking at the stuff that's sloughing off those fats in people's urine when they when they do a urine test. Um, and some of those tests also are just like, the other thing is too, some of those tests are actually just so imprecise that they're just looking bluntly for anything that reads as like a cannabinoid, which is actually a whole class of substances that are found in hemp and cannabis in all its forms. So a very imprecise test a person taking CBD could fail it. Um, I mean, what people what I mean, what people can do about that? Unfortunately, you know, I would say if you have a job that you absolutely cannot fail a drug test, if you're a teacher, you know, unfortunately, you probably shouldn't be taking CBD. At least not when you're, you know, maybe take it over the summer when you're not getting drug tested. But but it's just there. There's no way to guarantee that that you're that that. Uh, um, you're not going to fail a drug test. And, you know, there's, there's another case that came our way, uh, if you don't mind me jumping into it real quick, recently, uh, in Nebraska. In Nebraska, they're actually threatening people who sell CBD. Um, just about three or four days before the farm bill was signed, uh, police came in with, you know, rifles. Like 12 police raided a CBD store and put the owners, who are a mother and son, uh, in handcuffs. And the family, you know, had all had all their money tied up in that CBD store, and uh, so the, they only could bail out one of them. And so the son ended up spending the weekend before Christmas in jail and got out Christmas Eve. And this is again, this is here in Austin, Texas. I can buy CBD. It varies all over, I know, but here in Austin, I can buy CBD at Whole Foods flagship store. I can walk into their headquarters location and buy it off the shelves, just like any other vitamin supplement. But there in Nebraska, they're still insisting that it's illegal, uh, and that they're not going to, you know, allow. They're not going to loosen up because of the farm bill, and they're going to continue to prosecute people over CBD. Um, and so it's, you know, there's going to be fights like this. Uh, they've got a lot of uh, help from the industry. That the, they were selling a brand of CBD called Medterra, and that brand actually is going to take up all their legal uh, fees, which is wonderful. Um, so, you know, they, they are getting some help. They do have a GoFundMe, which you can find if you find the article on Ministry of Hemp. Uh, yeah, they got, they're, you know, but, and there's also now threats against the second store there. So, you know, there's going to be continued issues around CBD, even though it's it theoretically 
out of the DA's control, that doesn't mean that other, uh, you know, agencies out there aren't going to try to make trouble for people because they can make a buck or because they have outdated attitudes about this plan uh, and what it can help people with. Yeah, you know, it seems to me that this is also going to be the case with just straight up legal mar- uh, marijuana, because we now have states on the opposite end that have legalized recreational use of marijuana, but it's still a Schedule Two narcotic as far as the feds are concerned. So, I mean, mm-hmm. if you're... Schedule a, One. Schedule One. Sorry, did I say... Yeah, pardon me. Schedule One. So, you have... Uh, you have a situation that's almost the reverse of what you're talking about. Here we have, it's okay to sell it, but the state law is saying, no, it's not. We still have this old school idea about what hemp is. And then on the flip side, states like Colorado, um, California, Nevada, uh, Washington State, I'm sure I'm missing some in here, that have now legalized marijuana. What happens What happens if somebody from the feds, from the DEA, comes in and, and starts shutting down some of the marijuana shops that are perfectly legal under state law? Seems to me at some point there's going to have to be a reconciliation of the federal and state laws in this area, and I'd like to see it sooner than later. Um, what do you think? Do you think that the feds are going to eventually just legalize this across the board? I think so. I think even among Republicans, there's increasing support for that. Um, yeah. You know, uh, especially with Canada just re- legalizing recreationally, that's going to make it it's a huge, you know, thing there. It's like our neighbors to the north have it. Mexico even is taking some efforts towards decriminalizing it. I don't know all the details, so I can't really speak to how far along that is. But there's examples there. Of course, there's Uruguay and South America. So other, you know, mm-hmm. uh, people that we deal with have legal marijuana. Um you know, I think there's so much money in it. And so, you know, there, of course, there's a lot of money in drug prohibition, too. There's a ton of money in the prison system. Right. Um, unfortunately, we're seeing right now a lot of money in the prison system moving into, like, immigration detention. So they're certainly making money regardless of whether pot is legal. Though, of course, I don't want to see that either. Uh, but, I mean, I don't know. You know, I think we will probably move towards legalization of cannabis uh, overall. Uh I hope it's done soon. I hope it's done in a sensible way. And I hope that that also involves, um, you know, giving uh, amnesty to the people who are in prison over uh, nonviolent marijuana crimes. There are a handful of people still who are still who are still on life sentences for marijuana, whether it's because of a three strikes law or because they were moving so much of it or whatever the situation was, there's people who are still in prison for life over just yeah. plant it now. You can go and buy almost unlimited quantities of it in Denver on almost any corner where there's a shop. Right. So it's just, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. And that's the thing too. It's like this uh, family, uh, the Begin family, who were arrested at their CBD shop. Their store is uh, about an hour from the border of Colorado in mm-hmm. Nebraska. So it's like you drive one hour and you can buy every type of marijuana, candy, smoke, and vape you can imagine. And an hour across the border, a nutritional supplement made from hemp gets you thrown in handcuffs for a weekend. It's ridiculous. And there does have to be a reckoning. There's just no way for that to continue. Even from a purely sort of legalistic standpoint, you just can't have, at this point, almost a majority of the states having some form of legalized form of this plan, even if it's just limited medical forms. Right. Uh, and then having it be declared illegal at the federal level. I think it's only a matter of time. I just hope, yeah, we let out the people in, you know, in, in cages now over it. Yeah, I agree. You know, thankfully here in California, we've definitely uh, done that. I'm not sure there might be some remnants of... 
and I'm f committed to defending the will of 50%, 57% of Californians who voted to legalize the adult use of cannabis. I've introduced AB 1793, which will simplify and expedite the pathway for Californians to make a fresh start by having certain criminal convictions for cannabis-related offenses removed from or reduced on their records. Proposition 64, as we know, contained a provision that not only reduced or eliminated many marijuana law violations, it made those changes retroactive. That means that people with felonies or misdemeanors on their records are now, under the law, legally entitled to ask the courts to expunge or reduce those criminal records. But let's be honest here. Navigating the legal systems, bureaucracies, can be confusing, it can be costly, and it can be time-consuming. In short, it's overly burdensome for individuals. AB 1793 will help legally entitled Californians take advantage of this opportunity to clear their own records by removing barriers and streamlining the process. It will require automatic expungement of these outdated criminal convictions and shift the burden from the individual who now has fees to pay, potential uh, requirement of uh, or decision to hire an attorney, uh, multiple delay, potentially multiple court appearances that will move those burdens from the individual and place on the government the burden of honoring the will of the voters and automatically expunging or reducing these crimes. It will give, through this process, folks who deserve it under the law the fresh start that they're entitled to and allow them to turn the page and move on with their lives. The war on drugs unjustly and disproportionately targeted young people of color for enforcement and prosecution. And long after paying their debt to society, the collateral consequences of having a criminal conviction continues. We all know this. It disrupts the lives of individuals in profound ways, such as preventing them from gaining gainful employment or having a safe, secure roof over their head and seeking housing. In my view, the role of government should be to ease burdens and expedite the operation of existing law, not create unneeded obstacles and barriers. You know, well, because you have, you know, you have the lobbyists. The other lobbyists, I saw a lot of money coming in from here in California when we were going through our proposition on legalization. Uh, believe it or not, the alcohol industry was spending a lot of money to defeat that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so they're probably yeah. they're clearly threatened by the idea of people being able to buy marijuana, which is... Okay, I could I could sort of understand why they think that's going to hurt their bottom line, but I don't know. I think it needs I think it needs to be legalized sooner than later, and I also think you know a lot of the the violence that stems from the drug trade would subside as well. You know, it's almost like I think that's almost certainly true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, they've done. We just you know, um, unfortunately, I'm forgetting the name of some of the writers who've done some great work recently on drug addiction, but really the attitudes need to shift, and what they're finding, of course, is that. You know, drug addiction has less to do the harms that drugs cause. Obviously, the big one of the biggest harms is the police state yeah. and the war on drugs and all the harm that's caused by that. And, you know, then the black market causes harm. But as far as, like, the personal health harms to people, you know, people are much more susceptible to addiction when they feel hopeless and they have no direction in their lives. Absolutely. And so if we want to make, if we want to get rid of drug addiction and we want to end the opioid crisis, you know, we have to help people. We have to give them access to health care. We have to give them access to the purpose in their lives, whether that's employment or mm -hmm. other ways of using their lives in, in meaningful ways. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's what leads to the opioid crisis more than anything is just people feeling in pain of all kinds and hopeless. And, and uh, truly, yeah, I just we need to we need to get things, you know, we need to end the war on drugs as far as I'm concerned. 
you know, uh, you know, administered hemp is in, in favor of full legalization of cannabis. And then, you know, speaking further personally, I think, you know, ending the drug war and making sure that people have access to the help that they need and, and meaningful paths just to have a, a fulfilling life mm-hmm. is the best thing we can do to deal with the drug problem in the United States. Oh, I completely concur. And it, it, as far as I'm concerned, drug addiction isn't shouldn't be criminalized whatsoever. It's a public health issue. That's the first part. And the second part is most of the op- opioid crisis is stemming from, wait for it, not heroin, not pot, not any of these things. It's stemming from prescription medication that has been prescribed by doctors. So I need to understand how these same folks are talking out out of both sides of their mouth. You know, you have a drug industry that thought it was perfectly acceptable to push fentanyl, which is a very hardcore narcotic that should only be used for end-of-life pain care for cancer for everything. I mean, they knew how deadly and how addictive this particular um, opioid was, and they did it anyway because they could make money. So, <laughs> you know, it's it seems to me that that needs to be addressed more so than, I mean, in a lot of the drug trade that happens on our streets, the violence that stems, you know, from drugs coming up through Mexico from South America, a lot of that would disappear, I really think, if we had a more rational um, idea of how to control drugs, how to deal with the public health crisis, crisis. instead of having this sort of puritanical moral position, because I think a lot of the drug war, war just stems from that. It's the same thing, you know, with prohibition in the 20s. It's immoral, so ergo, we're going to make it illegal and try to, uh, you know, control people's moral values this way. Um, and it just blows up in your face mm-hmm. every time. Because people, look, I'm not, if you legalize heroin tomorrow, I'm not going to go shoot it up. I have no desire to do that. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, but I've mm-hmm. heard this argument mm-hmm. made time and time again. Well, if we legalize it, drug rates will increase. No, they won't. Because the people that are going to take drugs are going to take them regardless of whether they're legal or not. And we're not really dealing with what you're talking about, the public health issue, which is really at base what's what's going on here. So, yeah, I completely agree with you on that mm-hmm. one. So I wanted to let's um, let's change tracks for a second, because there was another interesting article that you had posted on your blog about Laura Loomer, who is just um, a total hateful hack whack job person i just you know she's if you folks that are listening to this if they don't know if you don't know who laura loomer is she's a she's probably one of the biggest anti-islam phobes out there she says very hateful things all the time she's um publicly said it's okay to genocide palestinians among other things um and that's not hyperbole what i'm saying so she's pretty She's pretty out there. Um, she was permanently suspended from Twitter a couple of weeks ago because of her hate speech. And she, <laughs> I have to laugh because she went to the Twitter headquarters and she uh, chained herself to the doors of Twitter. And she was crying like a baby on, on per- not Periscope, I guess, because that's Twitter, but was it Facebook, I guess? So she was videotaping her doing this. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it was just really funny. It didn't last very long because... She gave up. But um, anyway, I digress. But you had this interesting post about that situation. And then you kind of um, talked about how this is something that you refer to as the Project Veritas cycle. So it's ri- rinse, wash, repeat cycle. Um, so specifically, <laughs> right? Because we see time and time again with a lot of these alt-right characters, right? So it, it's, walk us through that and how it um, relates to the current uh, problems that we're seeing at the immigration camps. 
Uh, so what um, the specific situation that I was kind of calling out was, yeah, that Laura Loomer, and you know, actually, I'm not certain that this blew up in quite the way that she expected it. I don't think it resulted in this because she's just such a she's such an extremely laughable figure, and 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 she's so open about her her hate. Uh, it, it might have gone differently for her if she's someone that was a little better about hiding who she is. Um, but one of the things we do see just in general and what I was talking about uh, in this is we see these kinds of... Uh, overall, what we're seeing, we're seeing a lot of situations recently where the far right is kind of taking the tools that we, many of us on the left, associate with the left and trying to use them for their own aims. And they're doing it to a varying degrees of success, you know? Uh, and it's everything from, like, banner drops uh, you know, we're seeing far-right groups doing banner drops, which is not something we used to see before. Um, but we also see kind of these groups that are, you know, doing like investigative undercover journalism. But they're doing them, you know, on behalf of undermining aid organizations like people that were helping uh, immigrants, which is what Laura Loomer was trying to do. Um, and what I've seen happen, you know, is that in the first place, it is bigger even than these journalists, you know, because the first step in my cycle is that we have the, you know, far-right elements, conservatives, fascists, wherever we're at in our political cycle, they work with sort of these neoliberal centrists in the Democratic Party, and they create a bureaucracy that's impossible to navigate, to stand between a group of poor people and the help they need. Now, this kind of that was immigrants and getting aid, um, but sometimes it's uh, food stamps uh, or getting on disability. There's a, you name it, there's this bureaucracy that's, like, impossible to navigate. So then the next thing that happens is then these nonprofit organizations appear to help the poor people navigate that bureaucracy. And that at least, you know, on its face, they're, they're, they're doing something beneficial. They are profiting off of this bureaucracy and profiting off of the fact that poor people can't get aid for themselves. But at least these organizations exist to help these poor people, right? So then you have one of these sort of wannabe journalist types uh, people like Project Veritas. Breaking now in the Roy Moore controversy with the Washington Post busting an organization run by a conservative activist after it sent a woman to pose as a victim of the Alabama Senate candidate in order to entrap the paper into falsely reporting her claims. The woman trying to bait reporters into giving their opinions as she secretly recorded them, but the Post never actually reported and ran with her story and, in fact, checked her out instead fact-checking, as they like to claim they always do before running any story, eventually learning the woman's links to Project Veritas, a group that has a history of using deceptive tactics to discredit mainstream news outlets and expose what it claims to be media bias. Joining us now, Howard Kurtz, Fox News media analyst and anchor of Media Buzz. I love this story because it's just wow. I mean, it was a gotcha campaign gone bad. Uh, Project Veritas, run by conservative activist James O'Keefe, tries to bait the Washington right. Post into falling for a false sexual misconduct story on Roy Moore, and it backfires. Uh, I guess kudos to the Washington Post for doing fact-checking. Well, it reads like a detective story, and it's it one does. battle in the war on the media that has spectacularly backfired. So the woman's name is Jamie Phillips. She, she approaches the Washington Post, which was the first to report on the accusations of four women who say, and then when they were teenagers, that Roy Moore uh, had pursued them sexually. He, of course, vehemently denies those allegations. And Jamie Phillips tells the Post reporter uh, this inflammatory story that she had a sexual relationship with Roy Moore when she was 15, which would be statutory rape, that he drove her to have an abortion. The Post reporter 
reporters checked it out, interviewed her several times, found discrepancies in her story, uh, suspected she was working for James O'Keefe, who does these undercover things, and found a GoFundMe page in which Jamie Phillips uh, appears to describe her new job. And so here's some videotape made by the Washington Post of Post reporter Stephanie McCrum after informing uh, Jamie Phillips that she is being videotaped, confronting her with the information from that GoFundMe posting. And it says that uh, that you're moving to New York um, and that you've accepted a job to work in the conservative media movement to combat the lies and deceit of the liberal MSM. I was looking to take a job last summer mm -hmm. in New York, but it fell through. Now, that was not true. The tape goes on to show this woman saying she applied for a job with the Daily Caller. The Daily Caller says absolutely no record of ever talking to her. Yesterday, Post reporters found Jamie Phillips going to the New York offices of Project Veritas, that's James O'Keefe's organization, uh, and then decided to break the story. Now, an interesting journalistic twist here is mm -hmm. that the Post had to decide to break its off-the-record agreement uh, with this woman because they say, the editor, Marty Barron, says that this was a scheme to deceive and embarrass us, and if you lie, then an off-the-record agreement no longer holds. Uh, another example was the so-called Center for Medical Progress that went undercover at Planned Parenthood. Texas grand jury delivering a huge blow to the two anti-abortion activists behind those disturbing undercover recordings of Planned Parenthood operatives. Instead of resulting in charges against Planned Parenthood for allegedly selling baby parts for profit, the grand jury indicted the accusers instead. Now, the two employers at the Center for Medical Progress, they are being charged with tampering with a government record, a second-degree felony with a possible 20-year prison sentence. They're also being charged for illegally offering to buy human organs to provoke the Planned Parenthood employees. And they released all those uh, misleading videos about what Planned Parenthood is doing. So these groups go undercover. Uh, Project Veritas, the reason I named it after them, is they're one of the ones that became sort of the first group that I'm aware of to use this tactic. And they famously, of course, used it to undermine the organization ACORN which is an organization that Obama set up to help a variety of poor people in a variety of ways access aid services. And they went undercover and made it look like ACORN was assisting sex trafficking, which was just ridiculous and had nothing to do with reality. But they were successful in basically destroying this organization that existed basically purely to help people. And that, you know, was using the tools of journalism um, and what happened at that point is they went undercover, they released these misleading videos, and whether it was true or not didn't matter. Those videos were effective and viral enough that then all the politicians had to say, oh my gosh, we're going to shut down this program. And now all that help is gone. And now whatever programs are available to those people are even harder to navigate. And the cycle is unfortunately probably going to repeat itself. If somebody else is going to find some way to criticize those programs, and they're going to get shut down. And obviously, there's two issues at play here. One is that we need to make it so that poor people stop falling through the cracks. We need to give them the help that they need and not be and get rid of all this shame and, and just garbage that's associated with, with poverty and how people should be bettering themselves and pulling themselves up with their bootstraps. And then if we do give them food stamps, we judge everything they buy. Oh, they bought a steak on their food stamps. Oh, no. You know, oh, God forbid a poor person eat a nice meal that they cook for themselves. I mean, that's the worst thing imaginable. They need to eat beans and rice and cry the whole time, or they're not suffering enough. Um, so, you know, that's a problem. We need, to just make, we need to make aid more easily available. But there's also just this overall problem. Uh, first off, 
these viral videos, these fake undercover videos and the way that the media reacts to them, but also just that there is this whole crew of like, you know, I'm just going to say fascist journalists that are out there. And there's a whole bunch of them. Laura Luger, unfortunately, is just one of many. There's a whole mess of them. Uh, we've got, you know, Tommy Lauren or whatever. We've got Tim Poole, who's a really unfortunate case because I remember, I remember when he was reporting on Occupy, he was a guest of Occupy Austin when I was involved in it. And now he's hanging out with, yeah, and now he's hanging out with like, you know, Steve Hiley fucking Nazis. It's just, you know, it's sad. But there's a whole crew of these sorts of journalists. My name's Timothy Poole. I'm a reporter. I travel around covering hacker culture, internet rights, privacy, and a lot of civil unrest. So when we look back and we have all these camera angles, we have all these citizen journalists telling the story, it's a more accurate picture of what really happened. If we want to change the world, if we want to solve the problems, then the best thing we can do is collect as much accurate information about what happens as possible. He wasn't, he wasn't, he wasn't part of Occupy Austin, but he was our guest here. We hosted him when he was, when he was doing, because when he got his start, he was reporting on Occupy live streams. I didn't That's know what that. He was doing. His, first, wow. his first appearance, well, yeah, Tim Poole's first appearance was as an Occupy live streamer. Now, from the start, now I'll say I was a fan of his at the beginning when he was just working out at Occupy and he hadn't revealed himself to be what he is now. I thought he was cool. Yeah. Now, some people were critical of him from the beginning, and their criticism often stems from the fact that he, you know, here's the thing if I'm out on the street filming and I see my fellow activists doing something that I don't think they want live stream, I'm going to point my camera away from them. Exactly. Um, you know, if, if, uh, but he, would not do that. And so he was controversial from the beginning because people were worried that he was going to get occupied in trouble. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people still saw him as sort of a supporter of the movement. Um, I mean, another example is Cassandra Rules, right? Cassandra yes. Fairbanks. She got her start. She was, she was reporting on Black Lives Matter and the Bernie Sanders movement before she made that jump over to the far right. Uh, yeah, so do you, I don't know do what to make of those people. It's very disturbing. It is disturbing. Do you find, because I think that Cassandra is just a grifter. I don't think she was really ever dedicated to any of these movements. I think she just goes where she thinks. Probably not, yeah. You know, but Tim Pool really surprises me. And also, I, I feel like I have to mention, because I only publicly got in a Twitter battle with him over this, he's he's an incel. <laughs> he's an incel, and he was, you know, he's like a male rights activist now, which, um, so let me digress and explain that for our listeners that have no idea what I mean by incel. Incel stands for involuntary celibacy. So these are guys that are, which means exactly that they they're involuntary celibate. They can't get laid. I'm just going to be you know crass right now. So they think it's women's fault that they can't get laid. And you know some of them even go as far to say that it's okay to you know just rape women because they can't get laid, or that we should institute some sort of thing that forces women to well, the Jordan Peterson version, where they should just have to marry. Mm -hmm. guys. They don't want to <laughs> you laugh, but it's just it's batshit crazy to me. These guys are batshit crazy. Yeah. You know, and they have a whole hierarchy, like the Stacys are the really attractive women that won't touch them with a 10 foot pole, but they think, <laughs> but they think they're entitled to have a Stacy. Like if you, if you go through and read, um, the things that they, they think it's just ludicrous, but Tim Pool like latched on to that as well. So I'm really stunned to hear that he was ever a part of Occupy. That's just, wow. <laughs> yeah. I'm surprised. To I hadn't realized, I guess I stopped paying that close attention to him and didn't realize he'd become an insult now. So it doesn't surprise me. I think 
you know, I think Cassandra's more obvious about being a director, but I think Tim, in his way, I think all these people are. Yeah. I don't, you know, I don't, I can't begin to speculate what's going on inside their head. You know, mm-hmm. some of them, you know, Tim, if you talk to him now, which I don't recommend anyone do, but <laughs> if you did, I think he'd say that he was never a supporter of Occupy, that he was just reporting on events that are happening. And he would say that now, too, that he's not supporting the far right. He's just reporting on events that are happening, Mm -hmm. despite the fact that he's been photographed at their luncheon, hanging out with them, you know? And to to me, there's a a flaw that's used in in so-called, this is where we get into me being a gonzo journalist. For me, being a gonzo journalist is admitting that we have biases. Right. Um, and for me, I'm just very open about my biases, but mm-hmm. I don't necessarily believe that there is really neutral journalism. Mm-hmm. Because if I, even if I follow traditional schools of neutral journalism, where I don't broadcast my opinions and my stories, um, and you know, a lot of some of what I write does follow those, you know, types of journalism. Everything I write, unfortunately, is not, you know, a, a cigar clutched in teeth kind of Terrence Thompson rant. <laughs> But, you know, I do write a lot of traditional journalism, but it's important that even if we're writing traditional, neutral, so-called journalism, that we understand that our words have an effect. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're amplifying one movement, you're you're helping people hear about it and, and in a way building that movement. And when you're amplifying another one, you know, if you choose to report the words of white supremacists, you're amplifying those words. Absolutely. If my reporting makes it harder for poor people to eat or access social services. My reporting was not neutral, no matter what my words look like. Mm-hmm. I've made a difference in the world with my journalism. Mm-hmm. So to me, as a journalist, it's really important. Even if, you know, to, if people are listening to this now and they're in journalism school and they're planning to go through a very traditional journalism career, you know, it's still important for them to think about how am I using my words? How am I using my skills? What positions am I elevating? What positions am I giving a platform to? And how am I fact-checking what those people say? Mm -hmm. Uh, Which is also just super vital. You know, you can't, if you're going to have a white supremacist on your TV show, which I think is is almost always a bad idea, you need to be really rigorously fact-checking every word those people say. You can't just let them make a statement like, well, I think the Civil War was about lots of issues. You know, it was about slavery. And if you're going to do it, you need to push them on that, and you need to keep pushing it. You don't get to let them have sound bites. Yeah, uh, and that's kind of the problem is that mainstream journalism always wants those sound bites no matter who they're talking that's to. That's right. That's right. My favorite one is always that Hitler's a socialist leftist. I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I'm like, no. Yeah. No, uh, somebody no, tried to claim no. to me recently that, <laughs> that he was a supporter of, of queer rights. And so therefore, if you support queer rights, you're a Nazi. The, it, and uh, that was an interesting interpretation of history. It's insane. <laughs> I know. Well, you know, my favorite thing is like, well, there's socialism in Nazi. And I'm like, yeah, there's also there's also the word democracy in the name of North Korea and Congo. Are either of those states democracies? I would say no. <laughs> Come on. The first thing Hitler well, did most, you know, was jail the socialists, uh, fight the communists in the street. That was the origins of the Nazi party right there. Mm-hmm. So anyone that thinks that is just... Well, and, the, and the socialism, when they say he's a socialist, they're ignoring the fact that the full name is socialism. national. That's right. That's national right. socialist. <laughs> and, the, right. and, and the people that want to make the argument are conveniently ignoring the whole nationalism fight because the all bigger, the people yeah. making that argument are right. nationalists. They they're are nationalists, nationalists of the right. most dangerous sort. They're Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. They're fascists. There's no <laughs> about it. Anyway. 
Yeah, so there needs to be more fact-checking. And I, you know, and I agree with you on the biases. Uh, journalism, like science, is absolutely um, capable of having biases simply because it's a human endeavor. Human beings have biases. They're, they're mm -hmm. innate to who we are. And anyone that can't accept that isn't being realistic. So we can put our checks and balances into place to try to... Um, you know, keep those biases at, at a distance, but they're still going to be there. And I think it's refreshing mm -hmm. uh, to hear journalists actually say, no, of course I have a bias. This is what it is. I mean, just be out there and, and obvious with it. There's no way Cassandra Fairbanks or Tim Pool are uh, unbiased journalists just reporting on the facts. That's just straight up bullshit. It's garbage. Let's be honest, it's all bullshit. I mean, Richard Spencer, bullshit. Like, really, you're going to tell me you're hanging out with Richard Spencer, but you're not a white nationalist? Come on, get out of here. That's mm -hmm. that's insane. You know, I had Luke O'Brien, who reports on these folks. Like, God bless him, because I'm sure he's... Oh, he's, he's wonderful. He's uh, wonderful. I love Luke. Yeah, he gets a lot of hate mail, too. You know, he, we compare notes sometimes. Oh, yeah. Okay, get... <laughs> <can>, yeah, man. <laughs> But you know he's he's been in he's been in rooms with these folks and had those conversations and um, and they clearly know his bias is against them. I mean he's upfront with that and he's you know the reason he reports on what they do is because he finds what they do to be dangerous. You know. Mm -hmm. So let's mm -hmm. you know speaking of uh, these things, I think uh, Antifa is another part of that. Uh, you know, Antifa has a very rich and respectable history in Europe, starting with fighting Nazis and Mussolini. That's their origins. Yet it seems to me that many Americans are painfully unaware of this. And they think that and the MSM has been, you know, participating in this. They they have gone out of their way to paint Antifa as something other than what it is, i.e. Uh, they'll show videos of Antifa fighting the fascists, but they'll never show the what the fascists did to instigate the violence to begin with you know i think um seville was a little bit of a turning point on that because originally you didn't have the mainstream media reporting on what some of those guys were doing i mean they beat the shit out of a black guy for just standing there they were shooting guns at the uh, live ammunition at the feet of protesters so i mean to to act as if and i'm sorry if you're chanting blood and soil which is absolutely unabashedly a nazi slogan that's violent too so um, I don't know why the mainstream media and Americans in general seem more threatened by an Antifa movement than they are what Antifa is fighting, but it seems to me that this quote, I'm doing my scare quotes for lack of a better word, this American Antifa, because it's really, they've tried to separate it from the actual movement, which is wrong, um, is sort of been painted in a different way. Uh, what do you think about that? Do you see it the same way? Um, and how do we work our way around that if so? Because I think it's really important to get more people educated on what Antifa is about and what its roots are, its history. I didn't want to, you know, I, so much as I do, you know, I, I use the word Antifa, but I also always try to emphasize what it means. <clears throat> and I think that's one of the things that Antifa is just sort for anti-fascist. And, you know, um, I, is, there's, there's a long history of opposing fascism. That used to be the tradition, you know, that you're supposed to be opposed to fascism. Um, and, and, you know, all that Antifa is, is being anti-fascist. And there is a difference in Europe. You know, I think that word is a European word that was imported here. And in Europe, it's like, oh, I'm part of an Antifa soccer club. I'm part of an Antifa union. You know, and it's like, that's just a normal 
relatively normal thing. He's not a mainstream position even there, obviously, but but it's it's not uh, the aberration it is here. And uh, while I do use that word, I think you know a lot of it is because it is its foreign word that they've been able to turn it into this scare thing. You'll see that you know Trump and the the far right is always in all caps, like it's an acronym for something or an organization. Just like you would say NAACP, you say Antifa in all caps. And it's not, excuse <clears throat> me, it's not an organization. There's no leadership. There's no one in charge. It's just people who have decided that fascism is on the rise. It's a real threat, and they're going to take steps against that threat. And so that's really what that is. So I think it's just important to emphasize that one thing I think is interesting is that one of the biggest anti-fascist movements in the United States was during the 80s, and they made a deliberate choice. They looked at what was happening, because there already was that term in Europe, but they made the choice to call themselves anti-racist action, or ARA. And that was a really you know important movement. They had At one point, they had a newsletter with thousands of members on it. And... They did a lot of on-the-street work like Antifa do today, where they were organizing and helping people, you know, getting Nazis fired, shutting down Nazi rallies, exposing Nazis at their workplaces or where they live or, or protecting communities and people from Nazi attacks or fascist attacks. Doing a lot of that same work, but they kind of looked at it and said, wow, America's not ready for the word Antifa. Let's call ourselves anti-racist. And it's, you know, that's what we're doing as anti-fascists, right? The dictates of it is anti-racism, it's anti-homophobia. Um, so, um, you know, that's important to emphasize. I like to emphasize that everyone I know in anti-fascism is either involved because they were personally attacked in some way by someone racist or have some personal connection because of that. Or, you know, but all of them basically are involved in some other kind of activism. All of us want to be doing other things and do spend our time doing other things. We don't want to spend our time exposing Nazis all the time, but we feel that there is a clear and present danger from those Nazis, that, that, that the rise of global fascism is real and measurable and problematic and worth opposing. And that in some way, unless we're opposing this, we can't do our other work. And, you know, I got, we are just talking about Occupy, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately, and it really makes me sad and kind of put things in perspective for me. You know, during Occupy, we could hold any meeting about anything. Um, I had a queer a queer rights group, the Occupiers. We were the Occupier working group of Occupy Austin, right? And, you know, we could have meetings and rallies and distribute zines and do all those things basically without security. We didn't have to think, what do we do if Nazis show up at the Occupiers meeting? That's not something I ever thought about in 2011 and 2012 when we were organizing with Occupy Austin. And I didn't think about it in 2013 or 2014 or any of those years in between. But now, even if we have a zine release party in Austin, we need to have somebody standing by the door making sure Nazis don't try to get in. And that's not just because I'm in Texas. I hear that from people all over this country and all over the world at this point, that you know, everyday leftist events, especially anything to the left of the Democratic Party. So that means like the DSA here in Austin has to have security. If they have a dance party, we have to help provide security for them at this point. And that should, like people thinking about that should really be disturbing. It disturbs me. And it shows where we've gotten that we can't just have meetings anymore as local activists without thinking about what happens if the Nazis show up. It is a clear and present danger. And I remember thinking and saying to a lot of folks like a year and a half ago 
there's a rise in neo-Nazism. And I got a lot of pushback from, from oh, yeah. that opinion at that time because folks were saying, no, 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 there's very few white nationalists left in the, no, no, that's, no, we elected Obama. Like, and I just could see it coming. I saw the signs, the cracks were there. And obviously they feel much more emboldened by having President Trump. I, I think that's painfully clear at this point. But there is an increase and it's something we do need to be aware of. Um, you know, I don't think what happened in Charlottesville was a one-off. And I think it put, could potentially happen again. I mean, look at some of the stuff that's been going on in Portland, Oregon. Isn't the nationalists like the, uh, it's like nationalists in Germany, like a Nazi party. No, it's, uh, it's about America first, the nationalist movement. All right. Globalism is imperialism, okay. I have a feeling that. The nationalist movement. The nationalist movement, okay. And what is that? That's for America above. So, okay. So, you believe in uh, American exceptionalism? No, I believe in all of European, Europe, and America. We are God's chosen people. Okay. Above all other countries? No, because all white people founded every nation. All nations are white. So it's whites above all. Yeah, the national movement. Yeah. Okay. Well, what do you say when people call you racist? And I'm not calling you racist, but what do you say when people call you that? Well, racist is a made-up term, but I really don't care what you call me. Okay. But you would be, I can't even say it, whites above blacks. Yes. interested in the counter-extermination of Jews. I know what they're doing. I know they're trying to kill me. I know they have killed millions of my people. And my answer to that is counter-extermination. I think the answers to jump off of that, like Antifa are a great response, and they, they have, we, we, as a loose movement, or just a, angry people all over the country who don't want to see fascism. I've pushed them off of the streets in, in a pretty effective way, but unfortunately, you know, they're still there and we're still yeah. going to see these attacks. I think what scares me now is the, is the, the groups like Adam Walken that are like basically white supremacist terrorist organizations that are right. trying to organize and teach people, you know, how to make lone wolf attacks. Um, that's, right. that's what scares me the most right now. I think, you know, we do need to be aware and prevent there from being another Charlottesville. But we also need to be aware that they're going to take on new tactics, too, and, and they're going to take on guerrilla tactics. And we need to be, be really safe. We can't always be safe, but we just need to protect each other and our neighbors and, and just try to watch for that. I think the left political parties, the Democratic Party, the Green Party, the DSA, which is not a party, it's an affiliation, but I think all of these groups need to be more aware of that fact and how it is related to income inequality, because I think we're still not having the discussion we need to have on that. And a lot of the roots of the rebirth of white nationalism stems from the massive income inequality in the country in the same way that it did in Nazi Germany. So um, I think there's a relationship there. I, I don't see it being addressed at all. I think, you know, you know, not to change course too much, but I think Nancy Pelosi supporting things like Paygo is a really bad fucking idea. And I... Uh, the neoliberalism that exists on the left is still really ingrained and it's still in denial about these connections. 
And I worry because I don't think Trump is the worst we can get. I think it does get worse from Trump. And I think a lot of people don't seem to see that. They think, oh, okay, Trump will be defeated in two years, no matter. I'm not even clear that that's the case. Unless the Democrats run a really solid candidate, Trump could easily win another four years. I wouldn't make any predictions at this point, personally. My gosh, I, you know, I did not... (laughs) think Trump would be elected. I'll admit that. I was like, you know, I'm not a big fan of Hillary Clinton, but I think she'll be our president. And it'll be interesting to protest her. And, you know, I, I, I was like, gosh, what's this going to look like? Protesting under Clinton. You know, that was what I was thinking about. Because they were yeah. those numbers in. So I I'll was, admit that I was blindsided by it. Yeah, I hear you. I did make that prediction in 2016. I got blasted for that, too. But I said that when Bernie lost the primary, I said, <laughs> we're looking at a President Trump. And people told me I was crazy, like repeatedly. And I'm like, I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy. And sure enough, you know, with the, I remember the election night sitting there going, yeah, I'm not surprised. But a lot of folks were. And um, it's frustrating because I don't think even racism has become a central figure. And, and by racism, I mean everything that's included in those tenets, the Islamophobia, the uh, mm-hmm. um, anti-gay rights, all of these things. It, all of that stuff is is always worse when there's severe income inequality. And I, you know, and I, I knew that Bernie Sanders was the populist president or the populist presidential candidate that could run against Trump and easily def- We didn't give a left exit is what I'm trying to get at. We, instead, we ran a neoliberal bank-owned candidate that was just going to give the population more of what they already had, and they knew that. Uh, and they, you know, people are suffering. So did every racist and white nationalist in the country support Donald Trump? Absolutely. I don't think that's up for debate. However, I don't think the reverse is true. I don't think everybody that supported Trump is a neo-nationalist racist. You know what I'm saying? They just were sucked into his bullshit. Yeah, they were sucked into his bullshit retort. They actually believed some of the stuff he was saying. I mean, I knew he was lying. You knew he was lying. A lot of people knew he was lying, but... I could see uh, that many folks were buying into what he was saying and they were never, ever going to support another neoliberal bankster candidate. They were going to either not vote, which we saw a lot of, or um, we had, what, 9% registered Democrats voted for Trump, which is sort of like, that should be a huge wake up for the Democrat Party, I think, because that's a shocking number in my opinion. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I digress as I often do. Uh, I wanted to talk to you about tra- <laughs> right. I want to talk to you about trans rights too, because you're a longtime gay rights activist, which is awesome. So you've you know seen a lot of the movement um, over the past twenty years get to the point where I mean, gosh, it's amazing how how much better things are in the country, except for the trans folks. And I've been trying to give a voice to trans folks on my podcast. I've had a couple episodes with trans rights activists now, and I'm always amazed by something that I just never saw coming. And that's the turf movement. Um, and a lot of the turfs, they're lesbians. And I, so I'm, I'm always caught off guard by this because to me, these folks should all be natural allies. And I don't, I don't understand why TERFs think that trans folks are actually men in disguise trying to infiltrate their movement. I really don't understand this this line of thinking at all. And it's just the actions that I've seen against trans folks it feels very um, prejudiced to me. Have you? Is this something you've noticed? I mean, maybe I'm more sensitive, a little bit more sensitive to it because I'm a woman. I don't know. But I have um, wondered how much of the gay rights activism is is aware of this and um, 
how do we mend this this bridge like between these two groups because I think they should be fighting for each other's rights. Yeah, um, you know, um, I mean, I think most of the people under the broad umbrella of, you know, that ever-expanding acronym LGBTQIA are, are in favor of the whole acronym. Yeah. I think the the people who are church, some of them are lesbians. That's tr- definitely true. Um, obviously, there's people of all orientations in that camp, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's... It, uh, I mean, a lot of it goes back to the fact that, you know, capitalism, now I'm going to talk in big picture stuff here, but capitalism needs an underclass, right? And as yeah. soon as one group starts to achieve acceptance, they're encouraged by multiple forces in our mm. society mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, join in the oppression of whoever the designated underclass is. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think that's a big piece of it. Um you know, uh, it is a backlash to a lot of the attacks on uh, queer rights, on gay rights, on trans rights, are a backlash to gay marriage and just increasing overall acceptance of, of our role in society as yeah. non-straight people. Yeah. Um, you know, they can also, but they also like to use, they like to use other attacks. You know, if if you get people up in arms about this supposed moral panic, then it's easier to slip other things through. You know, we saw with the North Carolina, you know, bathroom bill that was so mm-hmm. vehemently opposed. Yeah. You know, they were attaching, I forget all the details now, but they were attaching all these attacks on, like, unions and wages and stuff to it as well. Right, right. There were all these other riders to it. So it was like, you know, let's get people upset about, oh, no, what if there's a man in my bathroom? Mm-hmm. And, you know, an imaginary crisis. And then they can get them, you know, more easily manipulated. But fearful people are easier to manipulate, right? True. And the weird thing that we've seen is there's probably always been people that were anti-trans, obviously, but now we're seeing that some of them are actually allying very directly. Some of the most vehement of these terrorists will ally directly with the far right if it's an opportunity to oppose, you know, trans mm. rights. Um, uh, you know, but also, you know, opposing... Opposing queer rights and gay rights is a traditional Nazi thing, something I always like to emphasize. Yeah, um, you know, everybody has seen that photo of the of the book burning. And if, if you imagine a book burning, this is what pops into your head. Right? There's this huge bonfire right. with all these books in it. And there's like, you know, several hundred people standing around it like they're at a party almost, you know? Yeah. And we've all seen that photo. But most people don't realize that what is being burned there was the archives of the first, basically the first institute in the world that was studying trans, gender nonconforming, and queer people and gay people of all kinds mm-hmm. as human beings, was looking at how do we make the healthiest, happiest trans person, not what's wrong with these people. They were looking right. at them as something to be understood and, and embraced as That's part right. of human diversity. And, right. and there was this brief window in pre-war Germany where queer rights flourished because of this institute and all those archives were burned and it probably set back our scientific understanding of trans, you know, and queer, queer brains, queer culture, queer sociology back by decades. That's right. Um, and so, you know, it, it's really important to recognize that there's a long tradition that the far right is opposed to anything that's outside of the white heterosexual, you know, baby making norms. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, you know, it's really important to remember that it doesn't, stop here either you know they would like to 
come after your birth control. If they had their way, you wouldn't be able to buy condoms in the stores. And that probably sounds like hyperbole to some of these people, to some people. But, you know, let's remember that within the lifetime of people that are still alive, you couldn't buy a condom without being married or having permission, you know, a doctor's Mm -hmm. note or whatever. And that's fact, you know, and and they'd like, there are people in power now who would like to go back to that, at least for poor people, you know, out there. Mm -hmm. But of course, rich people have always been able to do what they want. Well, you know, who want to take away birth control. That's right. It's financial eugenics in many ways. You know, I saw this, there's this great, uh, you're reminding me of this, there's this great documentary on Netflix called Reversing Row. Everybody should check it out. I did not know this. Mm-hmm. I learned from this documentary that the Catholic church at, church at one time was actively supporting abortion in the country. So look at the shift that happened there. It's It's stunning. So there is a lot of truth to what you're saying. We need to be on guard for these reasons. You know, and I think the other part of that discussion um, is trans folks, I mean, there's biological reasons for, for, for people being trans, and sexuality is not binary. We all need to get past that concept, and I think um, that was part of the work that was being done that you are talking about from that book burning. We've had mm-hmm. trans folks with us mm-hmm. since the dawn of time. We, we've, it's no big shock to learn mm-hmm. that there are kids that are born, born with various degrees of both sex organs, for example. And I know um, Dr. Dean Hamer has done work on the sexing of, of the brain, where sometimes in vitro you're sexed with a massive amount of hormone washing and also at puberty these two times. And oftentimes people are sexed with the opposite of hormone than what their actual physical attributes are, which is why you would feel like a woman and think like a woman, even though you have a penis. So, I mean, there are, there, there, to me, none of these reasons should be any uh, basis for hating somebody or for thinking something's wrong or evil. This is just human biology. I mean, you know, it's the spread of excellence. It's, it's, you know, it's not hierarchy. It's the spread of excellence. Uh, so I really wish in this country, and, and you know, we can make the same arguments about race as well. People just need to get to the place where they understand that. And that, and realize that many of the basis for these prejudices are just not rooted in science. They're not rooted in biology. So stop looking to science to justify the way you want to think. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you, so you've been an activist for a long time. Um, what would your advice be to a young activist that's just coming up, a young millennial, um, what do they call in the next generation? Generation Z, I think, because we're now getting into the next generation. Something like that. Yeah. 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 I think a lot of them are feeling very, um, apathetic. I think they're not happy with the way things are in the country. I think they are getting the brunt end of, of the tail end of the really bad policies that we've instituted over the last 30 years. They can't afford college because we've defunded our public education um, they can't find decent jobs because, you know, God forbid the corporations had to ever freaking step up and pay their fair share again. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we can go down the list. I, you know, what, mm-hmm. how do we engage these young voters more, these young activists more? How do we get them more involved in what we're doing and, and really give them, energize them? Because we need them in the movement. And I, uh, I understand why they feel apathetic. I do. I get it. But I also want to be part of the reason that they feel less apathetic. And I'm sure you do too, Kit. So what are some thoughts or ideas that you may have on reaching out to these um, young folk? I think a lot starts with listening to them and, and, and 
paying attention to the issues that matter to them and and looking for new new solutions that are going to be different than the solutions that maybe worked or we were hoping would work before. I mean, you know, we're looking at I when I imagine myself in the, in the shoes of someone who's 18 or 19 right now, you know, I'm wondering like what's the climate going to be like by the time I turn 30? You know, like how hard is it going to be to find fresh water by the time I turn 30? <laughs> like, is you know, are we really going to be that bad off? And it's like, you know, for, for if, if, when I turned 18, it was really easy to believe that, you know, I, gosh, I was so excited to vote for Bill Clinton. And that was my first election right when I turned 18. And I was participating in, in the electoral system and I was going to be a good American by voting and it was going to change the world, you know? Um, and I, I, I imagine it's a lot harder to believe that that vote is going to do that now, regardless of who you're voting for. Um, you know, even the, even the candidates that I love, I, I, for the most part, they're not talking about the candidates, even the people on the left for the most part, are not talking about the solutions that we need. Now, you know, uh, a change of protest talking about the 70% tax rate, but, that's a little more of a radical solution that we've heard from somebody elected in a while. So I appreciate that we have voices like her out there now. But we need to be looking at voices like that. They're saying things that really seem radical and maybe impossible. You know, I I work with younger activists. A lot of what I do with my collective is trying to teach people skills that they need to be good activists. And I see some very engaged people that are in their teens and early 20s they're not engaged with voting, but what gets them engaged are movements that are, that are pretty radical in their solutions, stuff like prison abolition and, yeah. you know, really radical solutions to climate change. And I think that things are severe enough. We need to be listening to those radical sorts of solutions, you know? So, I, so that's what I would tell the people our age is really listen to what the kids are saying. Um, for the, for the, for them, you know, the people who are just seeing all the activism, I would say, you know, um, Listen to your instincts and find the things that you're angry about and work on those because that's important. You know, the stuff that you're mad about, the fact that you don't know what your planet's going to be like, and you don't know if you're going to be able to have kids yourself mm -hmm. because the planet's so profoundly fucked up. Right. I, you know, I think, you know, find that anger and cultivate it and look for some radical solutions to it because that's what it's going to take. You know, and then, yeah. just, you know, educate yourself about everything you can to make yourself safer out there. Um, mm. you know, don't, don't trust the police as an activist and, and protect yourself from, you know, all kinds of surveillance and, and people who would undermine you That's right. uh, as an activist too, you know, protect your phone, protect your, your, what you say and who you talk to and, and just build safe networks and, and, you know, cultivate that anger and look for solutions around you that you can take now. Um, cause I, I get frustrated. People tell me, you know, it's like, yeah, I, I hope we. I sure, I sure as hell hope that we vote Trump out in 2020. God, yeah, I hope we do that. God, but I, so I want, I want to. What do I, what do I do today? You know, what do we do today for the kids in a tent city in Tornillo? Mm -hmm. You know, they don't give a crap about whether or not Trump gets thrown out. And I mean, maybe they do. They probably do. But like right now, their biggest issues are that they're in an ice box without enough food in the middle of an isolated desert without their families. Yeah. You know, and so it's yeah. like, you know, I want to vote Trump out, but I also, I want, we need to be looking at the immediate things. And I think that's a big way to attract younger people to activism is to, is to show, is to be looking at the immediate and, and trying to fix 
the really screwed up things that are here now screwed up and, and, and do it right now. You're right, Kit. That, you know, it make, it's making me think, too, that I wish I could attract these young voters to vote in primaries more because a lot of the radical solutions, and I'm using scare quotes because I don't think a lot of these things are all that radical, actually. It's crazy. I mean, we had a 90% tax rate for the wealthiest Americans in this country in the 50s. The highest rate under Reagan was 50%, 50% under Reagan. So the fact that this is even radical at this point is kind of like, yikes. But having said that, I think um, the candidates that they would be very energized by that do support more radical agendas like Ocasio does are not making it out of the primary system. And and part of the reason is that very few people vote in the primaries. I'd almost be more excited about some of these folks turning out for the primary at a greater rate than they do the general. You know what I'm saying? Because I think we need these new candidates, these um, non-bot, non-corporatist candidates. And the unfortunate reality is they don't have a lot of money to run off of. And they're running against people that have huge war chests from the establishment in both parties. You know what I'm saying? So, um, just a thought mm-hmm. I'm having as I'm talking to you. I think helping with that is, is a good step too. Um, absolutely. Like I said, I'm not, you know, I, I really support my, uh, my friends that are involved in the electoral level. And I think that's important, but I also, you know, I find it hard to believe that we're going to be able to vote ourselves out of the climate mess that we're in without people in the streets shutting stuff down and and breaking things that need to be broken. So, you know, yeah, I want to see young people voting more, but I also, you know, my focus is always more on on what, you know, what are we doing in the streets today? Uh, And, you know, I think that leads to change in the voting booth and it leads to change in Washington uh, too. So, yeah. Don't just vote, get angry, and fuck shit up. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that's, that's, I stole that from you, actually. I read that in one of your articles, and I think it's, it's absolutely right. Don't oh, just good. Because we, we need both. Um, I don't think we're going to get to solutions without both being the case, because too often, it, look, if you just have the lesser evil candidates in office, we get nowhere. We get fucking nowhere because they're enabling the other shit. I mean, half the Democrat Party is just a bunch of assistants to the GOP. They're not providing any, they call themselves the resistance, but they're the assistants. They're not really opposing a lot of the agenda that's getting passed. They're actively participating in it. And I think the only way we fix that is getting out on the street with our pitchforks and being angry. I completely concur with you. <laughs> right? So, so, I mean, you know, and I, I don't, I, I love the idea of there being a party of real alternatives. Yeah, me too. But I don't see that it's there right now. Yeah. I don't see that there is one. And, I, and the DSA is the closest. Yeah. And I have lots of friends that work with them. And some of them are doing incredible work. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't, they're not there yet either. And yeah. the Green Party, I unfortunately... I yeah. have a lot of issues with the Green Party platform myself. So mm-hmm. I don't, you know, I I hope we get to the point where we have a viable party alternative here. Maybe yeah. that takes things like ranked choice voting, like they're experimenting mm-hmm. with in Maine, uh, spreading a bit more, you know, uh, that we start looking at some other ways, you know, to, to do our democracy. If we're going to do democracy, maybe there's better ways to do it. I 200% agree with you. I'd love to see more ranked choice voting. I'm glad that we now in California have a semi-open primary system. I think all of these things allow voters to choose candidates that they that are better candidates, not necessarily beholden to to really strong 
corporate parties that have all the power. So I'd like to see more of that kind of stuff mm-hmm. too. I mean, even if we, I mean, we're, we're never going to be a parliamentary system, but even if we sort of uh, moved towards, have, I, I don't think we have to be by a uh, by, by party, two party system. I think we could have a much healthier democracy if we had several parties and if they had, were forced to form coalitions in much the same way. And I think ranked choice is a step in that direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, now if folks want to follow you on Twitter, what is your Twitter handle, Kit? It's at Kit O'Connell, K-I-T-O-C-O-N-N-E-L-L, at Kit O'Connell. Right, and your blog is um, your name, so people can just, I'll put a link to it. Kit, in the Kit O'Connell.com, that's right. 